1: Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked supporters. Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, as ever, we have Spikes deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spikes columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show: Extinction Rebellion, rainbow-colored hate crime cars, the Nirvana baby, and the tiger who came to tea. So, Extinction Rebellion are back. Their antics have been clogging up London streets all this week and going into next week. Tom, what have you made of it? It's very easy to lampoon Extinction Rebellion, of course, and there's no real but to that because it's really <laughs> good fun. I mean,
0: they do look like a kind of collection of art school students who got lost on the way back from a side trance rave, along with a few vicars. There's always a lot of religious people, kind yeah. of older home counties, religious might say something into the mix. They're kind of united, the white middle and upper classes in all its diversity, whenever you see them pop out onto the streets. Um... And, of course, all of the kind of theatrics they get up to, the kind of am-dram, doomsday set pieces that they um, play out each time they um, set about London. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot of disruption which takes place, which irks a lot of people. And one of the conversations that I think has been recurring a lot this week, um, now that the shine has come off them a little bit, is this idea of, um, aren't you going to alienate people? Mm. You know, aren't aren't these tactics going to put people off? I think last time around when Extinction Rebellion was shutting down London, there were some polls suggesting more than half of the population didn't like their tactics and all the rest of it. But I think that's kind of the wrong question, (laughs) really, because one thing about Extinction Rebellion is that not only do they seem precision designed to put off ordinary people, but they don't really care what they think. I wrote Mm -hmm. about this on Spike this week, because really the dynamic that exists, as far as I can see, is you kind of have a kind of manifestation of the cultural elite in a slightly more extreme, absurd form, putting pressure on the political elite, to enforce eco austerity quicker than the current timetable yeah. you know really if we're talking about it the government agrees more than it disagrees with Extinction Rebellion you know the government want net zero by 2050 which comes with all kinds of costs that we've previously talked about Extinction Rebellion want it by 2025 which no one serious thinks is is plausible regardless yeah. of, the, of the cost anyway um and that's one of the things that I think people get wrong about it is that this is, isn't even trying to be a sort of like grassroots mo- grass movement that is trying to inspire people uh, to take this particular issue seriously. They're just trying to kind of shame the government into more and more drastic courses of action. So I think one thing when we're thinking about this movement is is not to always ask that question of, you know, don't you think you're alienating people? I think they've got that baked in <laughs> really at this point. <laughs> Ella?
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and lots of people, as Tom said, have been um, sort of tutting at the rather farcical nature of their kind of street theatre. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the problem is that when you do things like that, when you do stunts or when you try and um draw attention, what you're really supposed to be doing on a popular demonstration is drawing in support towards you, both from people on the street and from publics watching. And the idea is that you gain popular support to then use that, weaponize that to change the minds of politicians. But as Tom says, the Extinction Rebellion are very open about the fact of wanting to shortcut that democratic process and just go straight to um, either passing laws or getting statements produced like they have done, you know, declaring a climate emergency. You know, this whole line that Greta Thunberg um, used and has now been popularised as, um you know your house is on fire you've basically got to run away from the problem and that's all very well for people who come from the home counties who can you know walk from their really lovely cottage to the village shop and buy the organic carrots and walk the dog and be very very eco-friendly but particularly if you're in london the people who are waiting in the queues in the traffic uh, in their diesel vans who are being uh, the pillarized and inconvenienced by Extinction Rebellion don't have that choice. And there's this real bizarre kind of and ignorant dichotomy that Extinction Rebellion, their supporters put up, that anyone who's against them is a like fossil fuel loving cretin who has no uh, appreciation of the planet when that it just isn't the case.
1: We also learned this week that Gail Bradbrook, one of the three co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, drives her own diesel car. And there's been a lot of kind of eco-hypocrisy to come out over the past few weeks. You know, we learned that it's okay for them, because they always have an excuse. Whereas other people, when they drive their car, when they go on holiday, you know, they're a drain on the planet, they're being selfish. But, you know, Gail Bradbrook has her own needs. She has to mm. drive her kids to rugby. Or, you know, she the other thing is that she she's been in trouble for was going on a trip to Costa Rica mm. which is fine and enriching whereas your trip to Malaga, no thanks
0: <laughs> Now the, the run of eco-hypocrisy I think has been really funny. First of all because so much of it is focused on diesel cars as well because mm. we've had obviously Gail Bradbrook forced to admit that she still drives a diesel. We had Alok Sharma obviously chairing the COP26 meeting um, who's admitted that he hasn't got his electric car sorted out yet and he still drives a diesel Allegra Stratton who's the kind of spokeswoman for COP26 um, another government appointee saying that she, she drives a diesel doesn't fancy an electric Car. Yeah. And you know, there's limits to this hypocrisy argument, I guess, because you almost get into a situation where you want everyone to be equally miserable or something like this. But I think it is telling insofar as the kind of lifestyle that they want to usher in is something that even the most kind of committed adherents don't actually want to do. Yeah. I mean, who wants to get rid of a cheap and reliable means of transport and replace it with an expensive and unreliable means of transport? You know? Who wants to see less of the world? (laughs) Like these are things that ultimately people don't want to do. So I think that hypocrisy is telling. But the other thing that I think is always worth bearing in mind here is that if you're talking about making flying, travel, even just your everyday life more complicated and more expensive the elites are always going to find a way around that. Not only will they have the kind of moral excuses, I was jetting off to, you know, address my climate change summit, so therefore there's some good in that. But also the fact they're going to be able to afford to do this kind of thing, you know, do those ridiculous gestures people do of paying to plant some trees to offset (laughs) their their carbon emissions and all the rest of it. So that again, it just gets down to that um, point that we always um, talk about when we talk about this issue, which is that class tension, which Mm. is so inherent to all of that. And I think Extinction Rebellion in its kind of, middle-class silliness um, to the detriment of working-class people trying to get around London to do their job. It's just a kind of more explicit example of all of that. And
1: and upper-class in some cases, as you Mm. wrote this week, you know, one of the co-founders is, you know, the descendant of a baronet. Mm. Um, That clash probably was most apparent, I think it was in 2019 when we had the famous Battle of Canning Town, where, you know, ordinary commuters essentially dragged the protesters (laughs) off off the top of the DLR. You know, such was their frustration with this kind of idiotic stunt.
2: Yeah, and that's what happens when you try to... St- I mean, I think it was two protesters at Town that were mm. trying to stop um, probably a couple hundred people from getting to work. There's that when you know, there is a real tension and that people have pointed out in that Extinction Rebellion, unlike many other protests and other protesters, get free reign to do really whatever the hell they want. And I think they should because uh, we should defend freedom of protest, particularly at a time when Pretty Patel and others are trying to clamp down on it. But the police are like, uh, you know, enjoying the music, standing yeah. alongside, facilitating it, fine. That doesn't happen with a lot of other protests. And we've seen recent ones, whether it be in relation to Brexit, whether it be in relation to anti-lockdown protests, the police come in hard and heavy when they want to. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a few baronets on your uh, your picket line, on your protest. But I think one of the points that you made really nicely in your um, piece this week, Tom, was that... Even for the protesters themselves, it's more about a kind of bourgeois desire to be, to kind of self-fulfill rather than changing the world. So you have this sense of when you see interviews with the protesters, they say things like, I just felt like I had to do something. I just couldn't sit by. Or maybe they might extend it to their kids saying, I just had to do this for my kids. Mm. It's never about the world. It's never about society. It's very rarely about other people. It's more often than not about themselves and how they felt about their green conscience. And there is a limit to um the extent to which that is, you know, radical. There is a limit to the extent to which that's interesting for anyone. Obviously it is presented as being
1: about the world, but you're right, it is a kind of projection. I mean, the Extinction Rebellion claim that billions of people are going to die from the climate is just idiotic. I think what you find is that people are able to kind of wallow in this because they have all this spare time, because they, mm. you know, have comfortable lives. Mm. And I remember, you know, the, the Gilets jaunes in France. Um, they were protesting against an eco tax, much like, much kind of lighter measure than anything Extinction Rebellion would want to impose. Mm. But they had this great saying it's like, you worry about the end of the world, I'm worried about the end of the month. And, you know, but reality just doesn't figure for these people. The realities of people's how people have to get to work, how people have to, you know, make money, th- that just doesn't feature anywhere in mm. the Extinction Rebellion mindset.
0: I think part of this as well was it's not really about politics in some sense. There's a, you don't just see this with Extinction Rebellion, but in general, there's a kind of tendency through which particularly kind of bourgeois pseudo left-wing protest has just become a kind of spectacle. It's Mm. something you do. It's like a means of self-expression. I am a good person. I am part of something. I had to do something in a really kind of thin and denuded sort of way. I think there's. it's no accident that you see so much street theatre at these things because it is a performance in so many ways. But then the... On the political side and on the content of the arguments that they're making, I think the other thing that you see so clearly is how anti-democratic it is. Because even in the rhetoric of saying this is a emergency, this is a climate emergency, obviously it's one of their original demands. Parliament actually, you know, declared a climate emergency back in 2019 in the wake of the first round of protests. That's not just the fact that they've got this wrong and that this really really alarmist kind of perspective on what's going to happen, you know. Mm. But it's actually because of the fact that if you if you employ that kind of language of emergency crisis, we must do something, then what you're talking about is emergency measures. You're yeah. talking about bypassing what people want. You're talking about drastic changes to living standards, basically these decisions taken over the heads of people that they will most affect. And that's one thing that I think it's, it's worth taking note of in relation to this. And also taking note of the fact that a lot of that language, if not the full extremity of it, has been Adopted yeah. by the political class in a way that would be unthinkable even amongst Labour Party people, say ten years ago. So there has been a huge shift, and it's a shift not just towards kind of uh, climate alarmism, if you like, but also towards anti-democracy. To the end of, of sorting that out, and that's becoming more and more clear. Definitely,
1: yeah. You see that shifts of language in, um, you know, the Guardian style guide. I mean, I know the Guardian. You- is is not so far away from Extinction Rebellion's views. But, you know, the fact that they're not even allowing their writers to say climate change, they have to say climate emergency, they have to say climate breakdown, they have to say climate crisis, is really telling.
2: And it also ridicules the notion of the idea that climate change is an important thing to talk about. I mean, you know most people as polls show are relatively sick of extinction rebellion most people look at the goings-on of trafalgar square and all of that and think this is what we're saying you know it's just a bunch of people having a good time this is this is stupid and if that means that a discussion about what to do with the planet what to do with energy how to find new ways of heating our houses and all the rest of it without harming the planet um gets sidelined by people thinking that this is just a whole bunch of nonsense well that's a bad thing because while you're you know those of us who think Extinction Rebellion are a kind of a bunch of idiots also don't think that there's nothing to talk about in relation to the environment. And it's you either it's so kind of binary now that you either have to be full guns blazing a kind of extinction rebellion nutter and you know michael gover and lots of other people in in parliament seem to be going that way Hmm. or you are a dinosaur who is like sucking on an exhaust pipe and doesn't want to talk about climate change or environment on the planet at all and there has to be some kind of not middle ground but there has to be some kind of understanding that that Binary kind of decision is ridiculous.
0: I think just one thing though is that, in a way, this isn't an argument about the climate in so yeah. many ways, shape, or yeah. Not only because a lot of these claims are so over the top. But it's ultimately a complete reframing of what politics and civilization is supposed to be about, insofar as basically holding up the welfare of the planet, in some abstract sense, over and above the immediate living standards of mm. people, over and above human progress in general, over and above things like economic growth, which are amongst these people, amongst quite mainstream Greens, is basically seen as a thing of the past that we can no longer afford. And we ex- they explicitly say, really, that we have to put up... With less. And so whilst a lot of this is obviously kind of inspired by the the climate issue, if you like, I think so much of it is informed by that kind of misanthropy, that discomfort with modern society, that idea that it's all wasteful and kind of unpleasant and kind of soulless where you get, it's kind of where you get, I guess, some of the kind of weird cod spirituality amongst these people as well that in a way is also what it's about. And also about, you know, how should a society like this be governed, which in in their view is a, whether they want to admit it or not, is a very authoritarian way of dealing with these problems.
1: Sometimes when you're watching Netflix, you can feel like you've exhausted all of the good stuff. You know, there's hundreds of films and TV shows on there, but only five you really want to watch. What if I told you that there's actually so much more quality content out there that you can access through Netflix? In fact, Every country has its own Netflix library full of shows and films that you can access with a very neat trick. All you need for this is ExpressVPN. Watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN is like paying for a gym membership but only being able to use the treadmill. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. There are almost a hundred different server locations to choose from, so you can gain access to thousands of new shows. And ExpressVPN works with loads of other streaming services too. You'll never be blocked from accessing a country-specific YouTube show ever again. And listeners to this podcast from the US can access BBC iPlayer with ExpressVPN. Recently, I watched Pulp Fiction for probably the millionth time by accessing Canadian Netflix through ExpressVPN. It's really easy to do. You just open the app, select a location, tap one button to connect, and just refresh the page, and you're there. ExpressVPN comes with blazing fast speeds. It lets you stream in HD with zero buffering. It's compatible with all your devices, your phone, your laptop, your media consoles, smart TVs, and more. And best of all, ExpressVPN encrypts all your data so you can browse the web securely. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth by going to expressvpn.com slash spiked. Don't forget to use the special URL at expressvpn.com slash spiked and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. We should talk a bit about the police. The British police have been given a kind of fabulous rainbow makeover. A lot of people will have seen these rainbow cars patrolling around their areas. The police have actually come out and defended this move, um, calling these calling them hate crime cars. And the idea is that they're supposed to encourage people to come forward and report some of their hate crimes they've experienced or, or witnessed. I mean, Tom, what have you made of this?
0: I think it's interesting because they're obviously on the defensive a little bit with Mm. this stuff. So not just with um, some of these squad cars which have been noticed with the kind of rainbow flag on them, but, you know police officers kind of going around in the rainbow flag or dancing at pride parades or, or TikTok videos, all this kind of silly, <laughs> Yeah, basically a kind of extended PR campaign to try and curry favour with sections of society, which um, for obvious reasons have a slightly more difficult relationship with the police because of recent history. Um, so they are clearly on the defensive about it. But I think one of the things that's important to point out in all of this is how slippery it is because it, it presents itself as um, just... Um, in some ways, you could just dismiss it as sort of naff and, yeah. and try hard and all the rest of it. But there's a very dark underside to it, which is the increasing policing of speech, mm. really, because hate crimes one issue. You wrote about that more specifically this week, so yeah. I should probably let you get into that. But there's a clear slippage going on between hate crime, hate speech, and then this um, non-crime hate incidents mm. issue as well. And it's never entirely clear what it is that the police are trying to raise awareness about and trying to uh, police people for. You know, first of all, it seems like the police don't really understand this yeah. distinction. There was that famous case, I forget, was it a year or so ago? Merseyside early this year. Was it early this year? In, in the, the middle York? of the lockdown, funny. Of enough. course. Um, Merseyside police, so I think it was like February or something must mm. have been, um, where they turned up outside an Asda with a digital ad van saying, being offensive is an offence. They later had to put out a clarification saying that it wasn't an offence, which isn't really a clarification <laughs> at all. It's the complete opposite of what they just said. But it's quite clear that a lot of this is not just about dealing with hate crime, as most people might understand. It's someone getting beaten up in the street because of who they are or, or um, you know, kind of racist vandalism to the end of intimidating people or whatever, or harassment, or harassment, like exactly. Something quite separate and different and something which people are going to take, obviously want to take seriously. But um, hateful speech, however defined, Um, as well as this particularly Orwellian non-crime hate incidents thing, which whereby someone can just be reported for saying or doing anything. Um, It doesn't even have to be the person it was directed at, and these things get logged and can show up on extended background checks. So that's the kind of authoritarian concerning underside to what just looks like quite a naff PR exercise. And it seems like not only the police getting more and more interested in policing hate in its various Mm. different forms, but they seem to have no real clue where the law begins and ends, where hate speech and hate crime begin and end. And that's a really concerning space to be in, definitely.
1: And and one of the strange things that is driving this is the assumption that there is all of this hate crime going on, that the police are somehow not picking up, that not enough people are coming forward. And so you get awareness raising campaign after awareness raising campaign. But it seems pretty clear looking at some of the data that actually, if anything, hate crime is going down you get there every year you get the headline figure that says hate crime is growing up. But this is a kind of separate thing. This is called police recorded hate crime. And we know that they keep changing the way that they record it. They keep have, finding improvements in the method of um, recording it and they keep encouraging people to come forward. So that explodes every year and that causes an outcry. But on every other measure of hate crime, the measures that have stayed the same, it's going down. So there are fewer prosecutions for hate crime than there were five years ago. There's a way of measuring crime called the Crime Survey for England and Wales, Hate crime has gone down 40% according to that over the past 10 years. So the whole thing, the whole campaign is driven by this urge to root out this crime that really, you know... Is either not happening, or it's not happening on anywhere near the scale that they imagine.
2: I remember you also writing an article a few months ago. Maybe it was longer, Fraser, about the fact that so much when you dig into what gets reported as hate crime mm. can be something like someone letting their dog shit in front of someone's yeah. house too many times, or uh, a these, are, these are the non-crime
1: much. hate incidents yeah. that get confused by the police, yes. and it all
2: gets mixed into with the same thing, and you yeah. uh, as the label as hate crime. There's also the fact that you know the police are driving around with these nice new vehicles that look very you know snazzy and welcoming. There's news in um, my area at the moment in Stamford Hill that there has been repeated attacks on um, Orthodox Jews, mm. violent attacks with this guy walking around just battering people. Uh, and actually it's been happening for a while in the neighbourhood and there are lots of Jewish schools up in and around Stamford Hill and back towards Manor House that have to have security guards. This has been a problem that's happened... For years now, actually, since some of the terror attacks across europe no no real discussion about that. I mean, mm-hmm. are the police cars mm-hmm. around there going to start driving around with stars of David on them what are they what you know what 's the solution there so the, there 's a real superficiality to this, but also the kind of policing of hate in a way sucks the politics out of out of each kind of specific incident of what 's going on, so even you know on a silly level, the rainbow flag. Does actually stand for something, you know, or used to stand for something in relation to gay rights? We now know because we've covered it on this podcast. It's been extended with triangles and different colours, and actually probably Steady the circles. Yeah, and- the rainbow flag is probably out of date now in the world of of gender and sexuality. <laughs> but the you know the police seem to be using it as just a sign of not of niceness because mm. it's it can't be the case that hate, that they are only dealing with hate crime um against gay and lesbian trans people and so then what you have is this suggestion that that things that happen where if someone shouts the n-word at someone or someone does something that's hateful and politically motivated that's about prejudice that really what it is is about just the police getting involved and finding out who's been nasty to someone so you end up having this very kind of nebulous discussion about what hate is rather than talking about how we combat prejudice or bad things in society on a political level. The solution, particularly this happens a lot with hate crime in the discussion about women and the suggestion now that misogyny should be hate crime, which I think they've pushed through in Parliament, is that the the idea that police in a rainbow car coming up and making you feel good about reporting the fact that someone wolf whistled you is going to save women and ensure women's freedom is a completely apolitical way of looking at what it means to be fighting for equality or a better society. So in that way, there's a real it's like giving the police way more power than they should have, not just on a practical level of being able to arrest people, but also the suggestion that they are the saviours of society. And that's not actually how change happens.
0: I think the the Stanford Hill um, case is really revealing as well, was that when... um what passes for the left talk about this issue nowadays, they only really care about hate crimes such as this when it's politically expedient to do mm. so. I mean, that's just entirely obvious at this point. So, I mean, the last big round of discussion about hate crime we had was, of course, in the wake of the Brexit vote. Yeah. Whereas a combination of factors, it seems like, you know, the bringing in of these non-crime hate incidents um, a couple of years prior to the vote. So therefore, those statistics being things that people could reach for, and as you've yeah. both said, those two are often conflated, certainly in the media. As well as the fact that in the wake of the Brexit vote, particularly on the part of... Um, the Mayor of London and all the rest of it. There was a pretty
1: concerted effort to uh, trawl, essentially, for allegations of this, which could yeah. then be reported. Sadiq so Khan set up a new unit just yeah. for online hate crime, specifically in 2017 after exactly. Brexit.
0: So, of course, that's going to lead to more reporting. And mm. as you say, that's not to say that all of those just can be bogus. Of course not. But at the same time, if you look at the longer-term trends and the prosecutions and all the rest of it, it's quite clear that that's not really an issue. But you take something like the Stanford Hill example, and I don't care about it. And it's not to say that if they were confronted by it, they would just be relaxed about it. I'm sure that's not the case. But it's because they are struck by this kind of identitarian mindset, which has a hierarchy of victims, mm. of which, as we all know, Jews come quite low down in because they're considered privileged and all the rest of it. And there's a hierarchy of perpetrators as well, because obviously this is still ongoing. Um and They haven't caught the guy, as far as I can tell yet. But he does seem to present as a quite traditionally dressed Muslim man. And that doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, And so therefore... You shouldn't talk about it. It doesn't become something that you hold a big solidarity rally for. It becomes Mm -hmm. something which is just quietly brushed under the carpet. And it just shows that, particularly because of the fact that more almost than anything else, I think the modern left defines itself for its anti-racism, quote unquote. When you see cases like this, you see how thin that is. You know, Mm -hmm. This is about pushing their particular narrative and their particular politics. And any case which doesn't fit that, then the solidarity isn't there. And I think that, that particular case is a pretty strong example of that. Because I think if if the if some of the factors were different, it would be a conversation which could dominate discussion for a week. And yet it's something which is largely confined to a few n- news stories and discussion on social media here and there at the moment.
1: Spikes is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. Let's talk about the latest cultural icon that we are now being told is evil. Uh, this is the iconic album cover for Nirvana's uh, 1991 album, Nevermind. Uh, famously features a baby, a naked baby in a swimming pool grasping after a dollar bill. The man who appeared as the baby, Spencer Eldon, is now suing uh, Nirvana, including the estate of Kurt Cobain, claiming that the picture is child pornography, that he was essentially entrapped into a sex act against his consent, and that it has completely ruined his life, prevented him from getting a job, prevented him from going to getting an education and from generally enjoying himself. I mean, this is a real sign of the times, isn't it?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, aside from the fact that this, you can look at this and say Americans have a penchant for suing people, yeah. and like he just wants his check and whatever. There's a Reaching cynical for that door. Yeah, you do, you do have to obviously. Yeah,
1: you do have to lay it on thick, there, don't you, when you want. There's when you're a cynical to get side to this, out.
2: particularly the fact that he posed for uh, recreations of the picture twice. Yeah. Um. So l- it's a little and bit, and once thin. offered
0: to do so naked. As well. <laughs> yeah. Quite recently. So.
2: But the but it has to be said. The claims are shocking, but not surprising mm. because we now are in a the kind of world that we're in these claims of particularly the idea that a picture like this of a naked baby is kind of child pornography or that the that you know you would read sick elements into that quite beautiful and iconic photo of it being exploitative is not uncommon, so we have yeah. the kind of twisting of um descriptions of abuse or um, or even actually of kind of sexplo- sexual exploitation and pornography now, where you can really claim that anything has bad motives if you take it out of context. And so in that way, it's quite a telling case because these, you know, the kind of claims of victimhood in mm. particular are becoming commonplace. I mean, it's also true that there, specifically around images of children, there's a trend now to be uh, uh, and I have to pick my words carefully here, like kind of overcautious about how we um, depict kids. So I remember being uh, threatened with being thrown out of a swimming pool when I was babysitting for having an underwater camera when we were obviously just all having fun. There's a kind of paedophile scare to all of this. There's also now trends for parents to be Overly cautious of putting up pictures of their bouncing babies because kids are retrospectively criticizing parents for not putting, for not getting their consent from their two year old before they put up a picture of them in a nappy. So it's a real fraught nature around the way in which we um, talk about and depict kids. And also the fraught nature of the cult of victimhood, where you could have the very sad example of an adult claiming that he was physically and emotionally abused by his parents for becoming a star, which essentially is a star.
1: Yeah. And, and you can completely understand why you'd be conflicted about it. Mm. It is weird. Uh, to be associated with any iconic image is, is obviously a very weird thing. Um, everyone has seen it. I mean, he said, I think it was in 2007, I feel weird that the whole world has seen me naked. Fair enough. But how does it get from that sort of conflict? or, you know, that inner conflict to, this has literally ruined my life, I can do not, you know, this is, my life is over. Or mm. well, it might be money, but um, it we, shouldn't be. Be, yeah. we shouldn't be so <laughs> cynical.
0: But it is interesting, as you both say, that this is the kind of script that you can mm. reach for now, not only because it taps into that kind of language of victimhood, but I think also when you're talking about culture, there's a willingness to kind of presume the worst about stuff that came before, because it dealt in depictions that might seem uncomfortable now, or it dealt in language that we might seem uncomfortable now. So you kind of mash those two things together and you get this case in a strange sort of way. What's interesting, obviously, they have, I mean, the response has been, I think, uniformly mocking, Yeah, really. I don't think anyone's particularly taking it, it seriously. But in deploying that language of trauma and, you know, even to the point of suggesting he was basically a traffic sex worker and all the mm. rest of it, you do get a bit of an insight into how these things can be weaponised. This is probably just a much more crude and ill-fated attempt to do that,
1: I guess. Finally, let's talk about the Scottish charity that has carried out a gender and diversity audit of uh, children's books in Scottish nurseries. The charity claims essentially that books which contain gender stereotypes then lead adults to commit violence against women. And one of the books it's singled out is The Beloved Tiger Who Came to Tea by Judith Kerr. Ella, what have you made of this?
2: It's very sad, actually, um, because the claims against Judith Kurz, who only recently died, which makes it even sadder, um, kind of famous and much loved children's book is literally that the fact that the daddy at the end of it comes to save the day, that the tiger is male and predatory and (laughs) eats all the food, um, and that the mummy is this kind of half-silent housewife who um, doesn't really know how to cope. If you read the suggestion from the co-director of Zero Tolerance is that if you read this book to nursery children, they will literally become, the boys will become rapists and assailants and the girls will become victims. I mean, quite often these stories get blown out of proportion and people say, oh, that's not really what's happened or you're making up cancer culture. That's, so this is quite literally what Zero Tolerance is saying. Um is that Zero is, being the charity. Being the, the charity, charity, that there's a, there is a direct link and they did this audit of all nursery books and kind of made this point that because so few, they actually said, it's books show a society that hasn't moved on since the 1950s I mean if you're going to take away those things from children's nurseries you will be kind of ridding kids of uh, an experience of you know Hans Christian Andersen all the amazing books that were written before the 1950s before 2021 that have wonderful um, imaginative things that provoke children's development but the you know there's the question about children's literature and censorship and there's also it has to be said the adult discussion about what this means for women because if we are really saying Saying that the only, which is the suggestion here, that the only way to combat serious things like rape, sexual violence and assault is to get in there early with boys in nursery and yeah. what read them inane books about how to be, how mummy is actually really fulfilled. Then we're saying that that women have no agency to change the world. It also has to be said that there's many people who read the tiger that came to de- to tea and don't see an oppressed 1960s mother and don't see a predatory tiger, but see a very a picture of a very happy family yeah. and quite a jolly tiger. So you end and up it- <laughs> thinking the some so incredibly <laughs> miserable. It. Maybe
1: maybe it's just about a tiger. I mean. Tom, what kind of sick parent reads their children? (laughs) The Tiger Who Came to Tea or Hans Christian Andersen when they could be reading their children, Ibram X. Kendi's Anti-Racist Baby (laughs) or one of those colouring books about Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something like that?
0: well, exactly what are they thinking shame on them i mean the, I think the, <laughs> the rise of anti anti-racist babies they're feminist baby as well i think feminist is my, baby book, all yeah. this stuff i mean it reveals what we're talking about isn't it <laughs> which is this idea. i mean what they're quite openly talking about is that basically politics and society is a game of indoctrination you have yeah. got to get them young because yeah. otherwise they'll get that tiger book and they'll be messed up for life <laughs> you've got to get in there with the critical race theory and the feminism and everything will be fine it's obviously utterly ridiculous but at the same time this is exactly what they're saying. And even though there's probably been a lot of pushback in a lot of courses because they have kind of overextended, kind of feminists in particular have thought a version of this for a very long time, mm-hmm. or at least a certain section of feminism, shall I say, have believed that culture, music, films, video games, all that kind of stuff, directly contributes to not only um, misogynistic and sexist attitudes in society, but actually rape and um, sexual violence and all the rest of it. They genuinely believe this. So this is almost like a reductive ad, ad, ad absurdum kind of example of it, but it's still, in case of it, is all of the same kinds of arguments, really. And it's also the sort of Stalinism of it, I guess, because they did this <laughs> audit, was it like 3,000 yeah, books yeah. across a bunch of nurseries in Scotland? They found only a handful, that, as far as they were concerned, passed this purity test, the example of saying, why isn't the tiger gender neutral? I mean, it's just like the idea that everything, even in this case, something which the family is not the main thrust of the story. Really. Yeah. really. You know, the family and their gender roles has got nothing really to do with it. Everything having to be politically correct in mm. that kind of old, <laughs> that old sort of quite style in this sense. Um, it's ridiculous and it's joyless I suppose is the other thing imagine only ever seeing this when you look at anything even a kids book
2: and it's also it's the point that parents can the beauty of reading kids stories is that you can fill it with whatever meaning you want because they're Mm. so simple Emily Maitlis when she was interviewing Judith Kerr made Kerr laugh because she said oh when I was reading it I read into it that it was about 1960s sexual awakening and ethnic disparities and repression and you know because you can do that my mum told me that she was reading it thinking actually the mum all along has just eaten it Everything can't be asked to clean up and gets you know actually switches the gender roles and says the husband has to buy her a delicious sausage dinner she and it's pretend, actually she
1: pretends it's a tiger it's, it's yeah it's a feminist
2: <laughs> time and so but the whole you know the whole point is that as a parent when you are reading or as a nursery teacher as an educator when you are read kids don't just do this in isolation you recognize that their imagination should go and can go anywhere it wants, but when it comes to instilling not indoctrinating, instilling kids with the kind of political and moral values and norms that you want, that doesn't come through an isolated instance of reading a book. It comes with a discussion with parents or your teachers. And so it's also a really reductive way of looking at the relationship between adults and kids.
1: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.